Please turn your Bibles to the 49th chapter of Isaiah. I wonder if you ever feel forsaken, that God has abandoned you. Where is he when you need him? Some of you here today may be in that very situation. One person expressed his feelings like this. My wife, a young widow, please know, God, it's so serious. This is not happening to someone else, but to me. I respond with fear, uh, then faith, then anxiety, then trust, then fear again. The emotional roller coaster is undependable. I need you so much, God. Do you know that? God, my maker, hear my cry. My body suffers with raging disease. I'm confused, depressed, doubting your interest in me. Why me? Somehow the loneliness I feel is cosmic. No one is near. No one cares. I believe this passage speaks to uh, that problem that we all face on occasion. The passage opens with God's servant, a description of him, his discouragement, and his destiny. Notice the description of God's servant. In verse 1, listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. Uh, This servant is appointed to his office. The Lord hath called me from the womb. And notice uh, his qualification He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. This servant will be a weapon, a powerful weapon, a sharp weapon in the hand of God. Hidden in his quiver like an arrow, but brought out and shot at the appropriate time. His words will pierce. His mouth will be like a sharp sword. Who is this? Verse 3. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You say the servant is Israel. Well, yes and no. The servant is Israel, but Israel here is a complex person. The head along with the body. The head being the Messiah the body being the true believers within the nation of Israel, God's Israel. Sometimes the head is more in view as in this passage. Sometimes the body is more in view, and we'll see that as we go along. Uh, We're in a section of Scripture that deals with servant passages, Isaiah 42 on through this, and on uh, through chapter 53, which we'll be looking at next week, deals with the servant of the Lord, the servant passages of Isaiah. Notice the discouragement felt by the servant or by the Messiah in verse 4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught. 
He's discouraged. Now, what is discouraging him? The fruitlessness of his labors. What would the servant come to do? Well, we're told in uh, verse 5, Now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. One of the missions, one of the aspects of the Messiah's mission would be to call Jacob or Israel, the nation, to repentance, to bring Jacob again to God. But as we know, when Jesus came, the great majority of the nation didn't respond. And we're told that they wouldn't respond. It says in uh, verse 5 there, uh, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, even though they don't respond. So, here's the thing that is discouraging the servant of the Lord in his task, one aspect of it. The people are not responding. We think of Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you? As a hen gathers her chicks, and ye would not. The great majority not responding. It was predicted 700 years ahead that that's what would take place. Even so, it was a discouraging thing when it did take place. And uh, God is faithful to his servant. In verse 4, the last part. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. He knows of my work. He assigned me this work. He knew how it would turn out. He is faithful. Now we see the description of the servant, the, de the discouragement of the servant, the destiny promised to the servant. Would he be effective? Uh, would his ministry uh, affect anyone? Verse 5. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Uh, though unsuccessful with Israel, yet he was destined to be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. He would be a restorer of the remnant in Israel who would turn to the Lord. And uh, verse 6 he said, Is it a light thing that thou should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel, the remnant? When Jesus came and carried out his ministry, although the majority of the people rejected him, there were those who responded. His disciples, others, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 a little later, <clears throat> among the Jewish people. A restorer of the preserved of Israel, but notice what else he would do. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. His servant would be sent not only to gather the remnant of Israel, but to gather men from all over the world, a light to the Gentiles. And that he has done, and here we sit. 2,000 years later, a light to the Gentiles. Uh, he would be worshipped and revered by rulers. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, To him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhorreth, Israel rejecting 
this servant. Kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Although abhorred, there would be a great reversal. He would be rejected, but he would rise from the dead. And his name would be proclaimed around the world, and God would give him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess, ultimately, one day, that he was who he claimed to be. Now, he also is given as a covenant, verse 8. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. I will preserve thee, I will give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. He would establish God's new covenant. He would be a liberator of prisoners. Verse 9, That thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourself. A liberator of prisoners. In the latter part of Isaiah here, Isaiah is looking at the future for the nation of Israel, and he is seeing them in captivity in Babylon. They would go into captivity a hundred years later from the time he's writing. They'd be there 70 years. But he sees them in that situation, and he predicts that they would be released from captivity. The prisoners would go forth. And so the, uh, the initial fulfillment of this, in a sense, would be with that liberation uh, from Babylon. But the ultimate fulfillment would be with the liberation Jesus would bring to men and women all over the world. And that's why you find uh, uh, people being drawn from all over the world in this scene here. Christ is the great liberator. Jesus said, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Every man is born in bondage. Did you notice the questions I asked the parents when I baptized the children? I said, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus and the renewing grace of his Holy Spirit? Do you acknowledge that your child needs a change of heart? He's born with a sinful nature. And uh, he needs Christ to renew him by his Holy Spirit. Now, that renewal is effected through the gospel, through the good news. God uses the word as an instrument to change our hearts, like a living seed planted in our hearts. The word, the message that he uses is that Jesus was God become man. God the Son, taking on human nature, coming into this world, and then substituting for us, the whole human race in a sense, going to the cross on our behalf. We say, well, why was that necessary? Because God cannot overlook sin. Is there anything God can't do? Yes. God cannot be inconsistent with himself. God cannot lie. God cannot be unholy. God cannot be unjust. God cannot overlook his law. So God's plan was that when man broke his law, God would himself 
pay for man's rebellion by sending his son, the judge himself, pays the fine. Sending his son to take our guilt, die under the wrath of God due to us for our sin, make full payment, and then offer us freedom, liberation from the guilt and the dominion of sin. That dominion because of my sinful nature. And he would break that dominion and give me a new nature. His Holy Spirit would renew me and live within me and enable me to live differently. That's freedom. Now, uh, that's good news. Christ is a liberator. He would say to the prisoners, go forth. Wesley in his great hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. By nature I was sinful, he says, and blind. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Has that happened in your life? Christ liberates, as Wesley expressed it there. Now, uh, we see the servant. He would be a covenant. He would be a light to the Gentiles. He would be a liberator. And... Uh, then we have God's people, their deliverance, their discouragement, their destiny. In uh, verse 9, say to the prisoners, go forth. There's their liberation. And uh, uh, these go forth from all over the world. Verse 12, behold, these shall come from far. Lo, these from the north and from the west. Uh, people all over the world being liberated. Their deliverance, the deliverance promised these people is a liberation from bondage, that he would provide for their needs daily. Verse 10, they shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat of the sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. The Lord is my shepherd. When he sets me free, he becomes my shepherd and provides and leads. Now, the transformation of obstacles. Do you have any obstacles in your journey heavenward? Well, if, if uh, God was going to deliver this people from captivity in Babylon, there were obstacles. There were mountains between Babylon and Jerusalem that they'd have to transverse. But God would transform those obstacles. He says in verse 11, and I will make all my mountains a way, and my highways shall be exalted. They're God's mountains. Those obstacles are His obstacles. He can remove them, or He can change them, or He can make them a way. He can take the very obstacles in your life and use them to develop your character, develop you spiritually. Charles Colson one of Nixon's cabinet involved with uh, counselors involved with Watergate became a Christian in the midst of that a genuine Christian but was sent to prison there's an obstacle mm. but in prison as he experienced what it was like to be a prisoner in the United States, 
the spiritual need of prisoners. When he got out of prison, he was led of God to found Prison Fellowship, a tremendous ministry that's now worldwide, incorporates thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women like yourself as volunteer workers with prisoners. And this mountain became a way. The very obstacle was turned into a stepping stone for Colson. God can do that as he leads and provides. And notice the joy. Uh, verse 13, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. This is the joy that belongs to those liberated people. You know, I ought to get up every morning and say, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Because I'm liberated. I'm set free. Man, I was doomed. I was headed for hell. I was so blind I didn't even know it. And God opened my blind eyes and broke those chains and gave me a new heart and a new life. I mustn't ever get over that. The joy that belongs to the people of God. The deliverance predicted for the people of God. The discouragement felt by the people of God. Delivered, but discouraged. Do you ever feel that way? In... Uh, Verse 14, But Zion, God's people, said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Again, remember that Isaiah is, is looking ahead and, and seeing the people of Israel in bondage in Babylon, in captivity in Babylon. How did they feel there in Babylon? And uh, they were discouraged. They said, The Lord has forgotten us. He's forsaken us. Had he forgotten? Had he forsaken them? Has he forgotten you? You feel that way? Well, uh, God says no. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Can she? Well, she can. It's not impossible. And you notice what it says. Yes, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee. It's impossible for God to forget you. If you're one of his, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, it is impossible for God to forget you. This is one of the strongest expressions of God's love in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament. Suppose uh, you're going through a trial and God comes to you tonight in a vision. Right in the middle of the night, you wake up and you have this supernatural vision. And God is there and God says, George, Mary, I understand what you're going through. I haven't forsaken you. I have a purpose in this and I love you. You trust me. Would that make any difference? I'd have a phone call from you tomorrow. Frank, let me tell you what happened last night. And it would make a difference. 
And when it got tougher next week, you'd remember that word from the Lord that you had in that vision. It would make a difference. But that's nothing compared to this statement right here. See, you have that statement already. He has said that about you. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Calvin puts it like this. He says, in a word, the prophet describes to us the inconceivable carefulness with which God unceasingly watches over our salvation, that we may be fully convinced that he will never forsake us, though we may be afflicted with great and numerous calamities. He had not forsaken Zion. They'd forsaken him. And because they were his people and he loved them, he was disciplining them in that captivity. The assurance of his love and his constant presence or their constant presence before him. In verse 16, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, says God. Thy walls, looking at it now as a city, are continually before me. I've graven thee upon the palms of my hands. That goes back to the practice from generations and centuries of People tattooing things in indelible ink on their bodies, the name of a loved one or the picture of a loved one. Uh, here's God saying, I've put in indelible ink, I've tattooed you on my hands. Those same hands that are dealing with the circumstances around your life. Every time I open my hands, I see your name. What a precious thing. It's like we might say, I've put your picture in a locket and I've placed it over my heart. And I think about you all the time. That's what God's saying here. What a precious thing to say. Now think of who's saying this. This is the Lord. This is the one that Isaiah said earlier. He stretches out the heavens, the universe, like a curtain, like a tent to dwell in. Uh, he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This is the Lord who is in charge of everything. And he says, I put your name, Mary, right on my hand. And every time I open my hand, I see your name. It's before me. I love you. I will never forsake you. All that I'm working is for your benefit. You know, you get a grip on that, that'll change your life. It, it means a whole lot to me that you love me. It means even more that my family loves me. I mean, I can go a long way on that. If nobody else loves me, if my family loves me, I'll just keep slugging it out. But to know that God loves me, my goodness, look out, world, here I come. I can keep going with that knowledge, no matter what. Little boy asked his daddy, Daddy, how does God love us? His daddy said, Son, with an unconditional love. He said, well, what does that mean? He said, you know, the two fellows that used to live next door to us, two little boys, Yes, Daddy. 
Hey, remember that little dog they had? Yes. Remember how they'd throw sticks and rocks at him and hit him? Yes. Remember how he'd just, every time they came home, he'd run up and shake his, wag his tail and shake all over and try to lick their face? Even though they threw rocks and sticks at him? Yes, Daddy. That's unconditional love, son. Men threw rocks and stones and sticks and a cross at Jesus, and he still loved us. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And you say, wait a minute. He also said, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? God forsook him. As a British theologian, <clears throat> Alistair McGrath has written a book, The Mystery of the Cross. And it says there are points in the believer's life when God seems far away. Faith may doubt God's existence, his goodness, his love. Does God really care for us? It's perhaps at moments such as these that faith is forced back to Good Friday. Uh, on the first Good Friday, God seemed to be absent from his world. He appeared to abandon his chosen Messiah to suffering and death on the cross. He did not intervene to rescue him from his executioners. Good Friday was the darkest night that faith has known. And yet, it was during that night that faith was born. For with the benefit of hindsight, the first Christians realized God was not absent from that scene of dereliction, but was present as its chief actor. Same with us. When he seems most absent, he is there. He is the chief actor. We see the the incredible love of God expressed here. One of the great hymns, I am his and he is mine, puts it like this. Loved with an everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, oh, this transport all divine, in a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. And when you understand that, it affects everything else around you. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know as now I know, I am His and He is mine. Well, we have the Deliverance of the people of God, the discouragement, and God's answer to that. And then the destiny promised to the people of God. In verse 17, Thy children shall make haste. Here's Zion, God's people's children, coming from all around the world to be a part of God's true people. Thy children shall make haste. Verse 18, Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. Nations, people, from all around the world, coming to be a part of God's Zion. And her wasters, those that destroy her, just departing. Verse 17, they that make thee waste shall go forth of thee. So here's this great enlargement of the people of God that's promised. The city will be too narrow, looking at Zion as a city. Verse 19, 
It says, The land shall be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. And verse 20, The place is too straight for me. Give me place. This is what the sons of Zion will say. Where do these come from? In verse 21, Thou shalt say in thine heart, Who hath begotten me these children, seeing I have lost my children? And verse 22, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles. I will bring these to you. And I will set up my standard to the people. They shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. Uh, we had children being brought this morning in arms, and, and uh, people coming all around the world to Jesus Christ. Uh, the church... God's people will be exalted. Verse 23, Kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee, and their faces toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet, and they shall, thou shalt know that I am the Lord. That's too good to be true, isn't it? Verse 24, Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? You can imagine... Zion in captivity in Babylon saying, those sound great, but will it really happen? And God says in verse 25, thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh. And uh, all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Well... Christian, God has not forsaken you. He may seem to be absent, but he has not. Someone's written a poem. Oh, Lord, shall I believe that you no longer walk with me because my feelings race the tide to change upon the sea? Shall I refuse to trust your word, abide within your care, if I'm unable in a day to feel your presence there? Or shall I think you love me less if I can't touch your hand? When sometimes I'm seized with fear and just don't understand. What tragedy, Lord, in this life to never realize you are a God who changes not, though feelings fall and rise. For never did you promise me your breath upon my face that I might sense that you were near in every single place. Instead, you said you would not leave. Forsaken I'd not be. So all that changes when I doubt are thoughts inside of me. Oh, Lord, I'm thankful now to see my faith cannot be real until it stands upon your word and not the way I feel. I am not forsaken. You are not forsaken. And these glorious promises belong to the people of God. God says, I can a woman forget her sucking child? She may. I will not forget thee or forsake thee. I've graven thee on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Mary, your name is there. John, your name is there. And I will not forsake you. It's tremendous. How should we respond? God, if you've graven me on the palms of your hands, I'll engrave you on the palms of my hands. I will serve you till the day I die with all that I have. That's the proper response. John, I mean, uh, James I. Packer in his book... Uh, Knowing God, excellent book, talks about the proper response. Is it true that God loves me? And so, why do I have a grumble and show discontent and resentment at the circumstances in which he's placed me? Why am I ever distrustful 
or depressed or fearful. Why do I ever allow myself to grow cool, formal, and half-hearted in the service of God? Why do I ever allow my loyalties to be divided so that God doesn't have all my heart? Of course, if you're not a Christian, God says to you, I love you. I've proven my love for you. I sent my son. Won't you accept my love and return my love? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, if you're a Christian and you have been wondering about God's dealings with you, feeling forsaken, just see your name engraved on the palms of his hands and hear his voice say, I will never forsake you. I love you. Your name, John, Mary, is written constantly before me. Trust me. And if you've never responded to his love, do that in your heart. Just open up your heart and pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for that love that I've spurned and haven't responded to. And I do trust you as my Savior, and I surrender to you as my Master. Come into my life. Amen.